Motorola's stock tops $300 for the first time. And I'll talk with reporter Ali Maradi about how local restaurants are preparing for the tipped wage increase. So California has done something similar to this in eliminating their tipped wage. And um, one thing that restaurant operators say is sort of like a silver lining to this is that all the restaurants have to do it. So, it, you know, they will be on level playing field eventually. It's just a matter of getting there that's going to hurt. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, November 8th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. I'm joined by reporter Ali Maradi here to talk about how local restaurants are preparing for the tipped wage increase. Welcome back to the podcast, Ali. Always a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So tell me about what restaurant operators are doing to prepare. So the city is planning to gradually eliminate its sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. The first reduction doesn't begin until July. So restaurants do have some time for this, but because their costs have been up for so long from inflation, from the increased cost of labor, et cetera, many are saying they need to start cutting now. So what they're doing is hiring fewer people, cutting back operating hours. Eventually, they say they'll need to raise menu prices, but that doesn't seem to be something that they're doing, at least yet. And talk to me about the menu price increase, because as you noted in reporting, once a menu price is raised, it rarely comes back down. And we often hear from from customers about that. So uh, how, how are some approaching that? Yeah, that's a great question. So menu prices have been ticking upward. It's been inevitable for a lot of restaurants as we've watched food inflation, you know, hit them very hard. There was sort of a reckoning that occurred during the pandemic at restaurants where a lot of employees did not come back to the industry after COVID closures. And because of that, the cost of labor has gone up a lot too. There's fewer people in the industry still to this day in Illinois the hospitality industry has not recovered. And because of that, um, restaurants have had to raise their wages, you know, to pay people more to be able to beat the competition for another industry they may go work in, right? So all of these things have resulted in menu prices increasing. And basically, restaurant owners are like, we can't do this anymore. This is one more thing. Consumers are already complaining. I talked to one restaurant owner today who was telling me that he worked the checkout for like two minutes today. And Everybody he interacted with complained about the prices. So they're just really worried that it's going to scare their consumers away. And it seems like that is happening, you know, even though we're seeing the cost of food go down a little bit, not even the cost of food, but inflation is easing, right? It has been for some months now. Those labor costs are still up and they're still causing increased menu prices. So in terms of making fewer hires, um, what is that likely to do to hospitality labor? 
uh, I, I have to imagine that might get a little bit of pushback saying, hey, now we have these huge sections to worry about. There's, it's kind of hard to win. Our tips are going down. What is that likely to look like? And how are some restaurants approaching that? So one restaurant owner that I talked to, they own For the People Hospitality. They own the Duplex and Logan Square and Wicker Park Cocktail Bar Revolver. So one thing that they're doing is basically pausing hiring right now, and then they're incentivizing their workers to become full-time and stay there, right? The restaurant industry is such a revolving door. He told me there's people that often work at multiple restaurants or, you know, maybe they work for Uber or whatever, right? So this person wants these workers to stay there, to commit to him, and then he would really invest in training them, basically, so that they're not just taking the orders, they're also bringing the food out, they're busing the tables, whatever. As a result of that, he's hoping that he can get some stability, which will reduce labor costs because you don't have to spend as much time training, as much time with the turnover, uh, but also the people that are doing that will become more efficient. Now, the trade-offs for that, for example, is that maybe it's a little bit slower for, for customers. He said he's thinking about putting in an order and pay system that they had in the pandemic days where basically a customer would walk in, place their order and pay all in one interaction, and then wait for the food to come out. So you could argue that as a consumer, you're, you're losing some of that human interaction that you go out to a restaurant for, right? There's another restaurant group I spoke with that similarly is kind of trying to hire fewer people. And they're just kind of looking at all the different ways where they can cut labor costs. And it could be anywhere. It could be just basically expecting an employee to do more. It could be thinking about, you know, the efficiencies with which they run food from the kitchen and they take orders. It could look a bunch of different ways. And I think restaurants across the board are sort of assessing all of those. And so are these expected to be kind of temporary strategies to kind of help cushion the blow? with the expectation that this kind of levels out once restaurants get used to that wage? Or would that be a permanent fixture? So I believe it will be a permanent fixture. And I think that these are some of the like early first steps they can take. Ultimately, they will have to take more drastic steps. So right now we're looking at a $9.48 hourly minimum wage for tip workers. And it's going to take five years to phase that out and get them up to the citywide minimum, which is currently $15.80. Now that could change in five years too, right? The target might move. But right now it's an annual 8% increases until we get up there. 8% increases over five years is something that the restaurant industry really fought for because they were adamantly opposed to this, right? That is a concession that they were given, the phased in um, kind of process, right? So um, I think a lot of folks are hoping that it eases the pain a little bit, but ultimately they're going to have to find other places to cut because already in the past three or four years since the pandemic, there have been a lot of cuts to labor um, whether it's just the way that they operate or however many people they're hiring because they haven't been able to find those employees, right? So there are things that if maybe we were making this change pre-pandemic, they would be able to find other places to cut. But everyone I talked to said that eventually this probably will end up in a menu price increase because, you know, a lot of folks have done service charges too that they've tacked on to bills. But Ultimately, you can only raise a service charge so high. You can only raise your menu prices so high, right? There are certain menu items that I think consumers, if they see a $20 hamburger or whatever, there's a threshold. I don't know exactly what it is, but the restaurant owner typically does. A taco, right? You're only going to pay so much for a taco. So I think these are all of these considerations are going into the arithmetic that restaurant owners are doing right now. 
Yeah. And what lessons might Chicago restaurant operators take from other cities who've done something similar? So California has done something similar to this in eliminating their tipped wage. And um, one thing that restaurant operators say is sort of like a silver lining to this is that all the restaurants have to do it. So, you know, they will be on level playing field eventually. It's just a matter of getting there that's going to hurt. You know, there's other stuff going on right now, too. The city is tossing around a new PTO ordinance that would require companies, including restaurants, to provide more paid time off to their employees, which is another cost that they'll have to weather. All of this is, you know, coming from an industry that is notoriously low margin, low profit margins. It's a conversation you and I have been having for years at this point, right? It's the pandemic did reduce profit margins in an already low margin industry. And I think restaurant owners just feel targeted that they can't do it anymore. Uh, Where else could they possibly cut? How else can they possibly survive? But if you look back on the pandemic days, I've had some folks tell me that, you know, it has been worse. They don't actually feel like this is going to put them out of business or anything. It's just kind of figuring out what that new normal is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I remember at some point in the course of the pandemic, we had a conversation about how some restaurant operators are switching out menu items. In particular, I think you were looking at steakhouses and how some of them were maybe subbing in more chicken and pasta and less expensive items. Do you anticipate anything like that? Did you get any indication from from restaurant operators that maybe they're looking to soften the blow in that way? I haven't talked to them recently about that, but I would not be surprised at all if that's a tactic they continue to deploy. I know also thinking about just how they construct a sandwich, for instance, you know, if it's a corned beef sandwich, maybe there's less corned beef going on to that sandwich or less brisket or whatever it may be, right? There was a time where we were talking very specifically about food cost-related inflation that was happening at restaurants in the past year, year and a half, right? And a lot of these restaurant owners I was talking to were saying, it is very important to us that we make clear to our consumers that if the price does go up, which it will, they're still getting a value. But I think as more of these mandates come down from the city, restaurant owners are finding it more and more difficult to explain to consumers why their price has gone up. And, you know, I talked to an expert recently who told me that for consumers now, it's not so much, oh, this restaurant's too expensive. I'm going to go to this other restaurant. It's eating out in general in the city of Chicago is too expensive. I'm going to go to the grocery store. So that's something that's not great for the industry. And I think it's something where restaurant owners themselves are sort of saying, you know, what are we going to do here? There's only so much convincing of our consumers we can do before the prices start speaking for themselves and driving a change in consumer behavior. All right, Allie, thanks for stopping by to talk all this through. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Coming up, co-working giant WeWork goes bankrupt and signs a pact with creditors to cut debt. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Discover the future of technology with This Is AI, a podcast brought to you by the AI experts at West Monroe. It's time to stop hearing about AI, and it's time to start applying it to your business. Explore AI's diverse applications from basic concepts to complex use cases. Get practical advice and real-world insights. Listen to This Is AI on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or watch on YouTube. Learn more at westmonroe.com slash thisisai. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
Crane's John Pletz reported that Motorola Solutions' stock price hit a record on Monday, closing above $300 per share for the first time, ending the day's trading at 304.58. Pletz noted in reporting that it's a milestone for the company, which came just cents away from hitting the $300 mark on Friday when it closed at $299.42 a share, just a day after it reported stronger-than-expected earnings for the third quarter. The maker of police radios, dispatch equipment, software, and video products reported 8% higher sales of $2.56 billion and earnings of $464 million. The company's high-margin software and services business grew 12% from a year prior. Operating cash flow nearly doubled to $714 million. Pletz also noted in reporting that the company, which gets much of its sales from government agencies, has been able to raise prices faster than costs better than many other tech companies. Its stock is up 18 percent so far this year, outpacing the S&P 500's 13 percent gain. An analyst with North Coast Research said in a note to clients that Motorola had record orders and a record backlog in the quarter, and it raised its full-year financial guidance, saying, quote, a very favorable spending environment and public safety combined with price increases are driving an impressive growth streak for the company. Oreo maker Mondelez International will raise prices next year on some of its products as the company faces pressure from cocoa to sugar costs. The cocoa price rally in particular was described as being, quote, so important that the company will need to do what it described as a straightforward price increase, CEO Dirk Vandeput said in a Bloomberg TV interview on Monday. Just making adjustments through shrinkflation or reducing product sizes, quote, won't solve this inflation at this stage, he said. Bloomberg reported that cocoa futures in New York have rallied more than 50 percent in 2023 and are trading at the highest price since 1978 amid forecasts for poor crops in growing regions in the Ivory Coast and Ghana. Meanwhile, supply concerns have also sparked a surge for raw sugar, which is up almost 40 percent this year. Vandeput said, quote, while the rest of our input cost is largely flat for next year, those two are really causing us to have to increase prices again. He added that consumers, quote, can absorb a certain price increase and are shifting purchasing behaviors in order to do so, including buying snack multipacks, which generally have a lower price per unit. Capital News Illinois reported that gun rights advocacy groups say they intend to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review the state's assault weapons ban after a federal appeals court on Friday refused to block enforcement of the law. In a statement Saturday, the Illinois State Rifle Association said it was not surprised by the Seventh Circuit panel's two-to-one decision, which said plaintiffs in the consolidated cases had not met their burden to show they were likely to win in a constitutional challenge to the law. Capital News Illinois said the organization said, quote, it has always been and is our intent to take our case to the U.S. Supreme Court, where we believe we can get a favorable ruling for law-abiding gun owners in Illinois. Capital News also reported that, additionally, the National Foundation for Gun Rights, which provided attorneys involved in the consolidated case, said it will appeal as well. The Seventh Circuit's decision on Friday left in place the state's assault weapons ban, as well as local bans enacted by Cook County and the cities of Chicago and Naperville. The state of Illinois and the city of Naperville both enacted their bans in response to the mass shooting last year at an Independence Day parade in Highland Park that left seven people dead and dozens more injured and or traumatized. 
Authorities say that the alleged shooter used a Smith & Wesson M&P 15 semi-automatic rifle and carried three 30-round magazines. That type of gun and magazine are now banned under the state's assault weapons law. The majority opinion from the Seventh Circuit focused on whether that type of weapon or others like it were protected under the Second Amendment. That opinion, written by Judge Diane Wood and co-signed by Judge Frank Easterbrook, drew a distinction between the types of what it described as bearable arms commonly used for self-defense and the type of weapons typically reserved only for military uses. The U.S. Supreme Court has already agreed to hear at least three other gun-related cases during the 2023-24 term. Among those is a case it will hear this week challenging a federal law banning the possession of guns by people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders. Late last week, the court also agreed to hear two more gun-related cases, including one that challenges whether a gun equipped with a so-called bump stock, which is a device that makes a semi-automatic gun fire repeatedly like a fully automatic gun, can be banned as a machine gun under federal law. Capital News Illinois noted that another case challenges whether a New York state regulator was protected by the First Amendment when she warned regulated financial institutions not to do business with the National Rifle Association or other, quote, gun promotion organizations. Bloomberg reported that former high-flying startup WeWork has filed for bankruptcy, listing nearly $19 billion of debts a fresh low for the co-working company that struggled to recover from the impacts of the pandemic. The New York-based company said it had struck a restructuring agreement with creditors representing roughly 92 percent of its secured notes and would streamline its rental portfolio of office space, according to a statement. The November 6 Chapter 11 filing in New Jersey listed assets of $15 billion. Bloomberg noted in reporting that WeWork's collapse into bankruptcy is the culmination of a years-long saga for the company, which was once the biggest office tenant in Manhattan. Its sudden rise and precipitous fall captivated Wall Street and Silicon Valley alike. While the company reached a sweeping debt restructuring deal earlier this year, it quickly fell into trouble again. Bloomberg noted that in August, the company said there was, quote, substantial doubt about its ability to continue operating. Just weeks later, it said it would renegotiate nearly all of its leases and withdraw from what it described as underperforming locations. WeWork's real estate footprint sprawled across 777 locations in 39 countries as of June 30th with occupancy near 2019 levels. But the enterprise remains unprofitable. In its statement, the company said, quote, WeWork is requesting the ability to reject the leases of certain locations, which are largely non-operational and all affected members have received advanced notice. WeWork also said it intends to file recognition proceedings in Canada, though its locations elsewhere are not part of the bankruptcy process. Franchisees around the world are also not affected, and it said it would continue servicing existing members, vendors, partners, and other stakeholders as part of ordinary business. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, reporter Ali Marathi. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.